And while people are settling, um, you did have a little sheet in case you want to write a question. And our roving Micah will bring it up for the panel to at least try to answer the question. I think we're all back in now. Um, my name's David Muir. Um, what I would say is that uh, Bishop Wilfred Wood, the first um, Anglican bishop, actually founded something called the Martin Luther King 12 many, many years ago. And I was one of the original uh, members of that. And um, Bishop Wood, of course, was very, very keen that the legacy of Martin Luther King uh, was something that was maintained. And the Martin Luther King 12 still, still runs. Every year there is an annual lecture, so you know, keep a look out on, on the internet for when the next um, date is. What we're going to do this evening is basically three things. I'm going to do a quick intro of this distinguished uh, um, panel, ask a few of them to say a few things, and of course we'll have an opportunity for some questions, comments, and observations um, from the floor. I'd like to, um, I'd like to start by, by saying that uh, we have a number of really, really um, distinguished people here, in no particular order. If I just start with Richard. Richard already uh, um, wrote an interesting and very enlightening biography of Martin Luther King. Um, he is the deputy head of religion for Christian Aid. We've got Alicia there, who is a tutor at um, Christchurch Canterbury um, University. She's also a PhD student, very much concerned with issues of black uh, religion and black identity. Uh, we have Neil Jameson. Neil and I have been friends and colleagues for many, many years. Um, Neil is the, um, the chief executive and the founder of uh, Citizens UK. And of course, Citizens UK have done some amazing work um, nationally, but it all started in the East End of London under the title of Telco, the East London Citizens or, uh, Organization. Then we have um, Selina Stone, who is a tutor at St. Lytus College in um, political theology. Selina is also doing some work around uh, black theology and the Pentecostal churches in respect of activism. And then we have, of course, um, Dion Wave Sandy from um, Christian Aid, but also she's going to say something about um, ML King um, Global. So these are our folks. Can we just give them a round of applause, please? You will probably notice on your program that we would have had Professor Robert Beckford here this evening, but Robert, unfortunately, is unable to join us and he's got some domestic um, issues. So I'm going to start, firstly, by asking um, uh, Richard to say something about either response to the film, which was powerful, or something about Martin Luther King that you find really, really important and powerful. Good evening. Uh, in terms of a film, I was fortunate that I had an opportunity to see it a couple of months ago. Uh, first time around, I thought it was very powerful, still think it is very powerful. Um, as somebody who kind of has written a, a biography of Dr. King, um, I wouldn't say I assumed I knew everything about him, that's never the case, but the documentary was very um, revealing. There are certain things that I hadn't um, seen or even noted. And, and some of this is, it doesn't have to be too sort of profound. So for instance, 
We all know that Dr. King's right-hand man was Ralph Abernathy, and I've said this before. I've never heard, I never heard him speak before, and you hear him speak in this documentary. You know, Ralph Abernathy probably spent more time with um, Martin Luther King than anyone else, even more time than, uh, than his, his wife, uh, Coretta. But, you know, he is someone who you just see beside uh, Dr. King, and to hear him speak is quite um, uh, revelatory. Uh, I think the other thing is, and you see this from the outset, you see Dr. King in 1955, and you, you realize how young he was when he first started. He was, what, 26? And then over the course of 13 years, which was the span of his public life, you see him age. And by the end, you see a man who looks as if he's literally carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. And you can see the, you know, how um, he has aged um, over that particular span. Um, I think that the, the final thing I'll say is, I really like the intro. Um, and I suppose the whole nature of a documentary doesn't provide context, mm -hmm. but the intro gives you a fascinating insight in terms of what was taking place in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, particularly 1966, where you see the juxtaposition of race-related issues as well as Vietnam. So you see the situation where you have a, a couple of individuals like Floyd McKissick um, of CORE and you see Stokely Carmichael talking about black power. Mm. And it's at that particular juncture where issues such as race really come to the fore within the civil rights movement. And here you have Dr. King who is very much about integrated uh, walks and marches under pressure from individuals such as Stokely Carmichael and Floyd McKissick who question integration, who question the um, involvement of white folks in civil rights activities. And also, these individuals are ones who question the philosophy as well as the tactic of nonviolence. And it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, Dr. King always bought into nonviolence and organizations like SNCC, SNCC, or COC, the Congress of uh, Race Equality, were alongside him. But by 1966, many people had questioned that. They were saying, well, you know, this is a violent society. You know, we must fight violence with violence. And, and that's what was coming out in those particular conversations. And then, obviously, there is the conversation about Vietnam. And Dr. King was one of the brave individuals who some would say he sought to conflate Vietnam with civil rights, but for him it was part of the same continuum, it was part of the same conversation. And he felt as a preacher, as a man of God, he had to speak prophetically into this particular situation. And many um, of his fellow civil rights uh, colleagues thought, you know, this is wrong, you shouldn't mix the two. If you're a civil rights man, just stick with that. So for me, it's a fascinating documentary, and I'll, uh, I'll leave it there. Yes, Response for the film or anything general? One, two, this one. Okay, good. Um, yep, so response to the film it was just powerful. Um, and I was really, really moved, actually. Um, there's a lot of things I learned um, during the documentary, which was great. You see the speeches. Um, I've never seen something quite so extensive um, on Martin Luther King Jr. And I think for me, um, just in respect of the work that I do, I run a program called Black Consciousness and Christian Faith, which is kind of like a bridge between um, 
churches and people who have left the church, left Christianity because they can't see how Jesus and the church um, speaks to their blackness, speaks to their suffering in Britain, speaks to racial injustice, despite the legacy of someone like Martin Luther King. Um, for some reason in 2018, the message and the gospel of Christ does not seem to resonate um, and satisfy um, their, I can't say satisfy their needs, but you know, um, feed into their feelings and give them a sense of purpose. And so for me, it, again, I was just reflecting on how people have grown up in the church for 20 years, 30 years, and still feel so despondent and still feel that they struggle, that their blackness is for the weak, and then they become colorblind on a Sunday just to fit in, just to be able to sit down. Um, and it's just shocking, actually, to watch three hours of such a powerful man contextualize his faith through his blackness, through the experience of his community, but then there are so, pe so many people my age who just struggle to do that and struggle to find people that can mobilize them to think and feel that way, um, even though it's, for, for us it's, it's the best way and it's the only way in every community it should be contextualized. Um, and so I think that for me was just the, the most striking thing, again, to be reminded that his work was so massive and so global and yet the resonance for so many people just seems to have died out, which is just such a big shame, I think. That's it. Good, thank you. Neil? Sure, good evening, and uh, thanks to Debs and to Simon for hosting what was a very powerful film. I hadn't seen much of that before. It was a privilege to be here. Uh, so I'm very touched by the, the oratory, uh, the, the passion of using the churches, which was a, a, a vital part of the whole movement, of course, was the the church tradition there. I, I learned also, I think, and I'd, I'd say there was some humility that what Citizens does is part of that legacy. And I know that because I've followed the legacy through, which is that um, the training that uh, Martin Luther King did, as well as Flora Parks and others, <coughs> was done by the Tennessee Highlands Training School, uh, which still goes on. The curriculum that they followed is exactly the same curriculum that Citizens UK has taught for 30 years now. We borrowed it from the Tennessee Highlanders Training School. Uh, the other thing that was linked to the, the curriculum is all about power, basically, if you need to know it. We're still running it. There's one starts next week. Uh, and getting people comfortable with power. And Rosa Parks, of course, didn't just accidentally stand up in the bus. That was for an action. It was planned, it was targeted. She was a vulnerable, she looked a vulnerable lady. She was not a vulnerable lady, well, she was very vulnerable, but she was a very active member of the SLC. She was chosen, as well as the press were there when she did it, of course. It was what we do in Citizens, a public action, mm. to get a reaction, and that was a magnificent reaction. Months of boycotts. We could never pull that off here, I don't think. I mean, we, we pull actions, but no more than a month. It was nearly a year, wasn't it? It was December. It's remarkable tactics there. The other thing that is part of the legacy, I think, which we're, we're trying to sustain is a lot of the people who were involved in the civil rights movement became organizers. Uh, a guy called Arnie Graf, I know well and is still is just retired. He was part of the civil rights movement, piggybacking a bit on what was going on there. Then he and others with Ed Chambers and Saul Alinsky set up this, the Industrial Areas Foundation which we have been in relationship with for 30 years. They taught me the power of, which Martin Luther King taught also, of organizing institutions. It's a, it's a quick way of finding organized people, and that has served us very well. We are an alliance of faith institutions, 
in the 21st century, we can't just have Christians. Sorry, Christians. You've got yeah. to have the Muslims. You've got to have the Sikhs, and you've got to have the secular folk, yeah. because there's less of us who are prepared to be organized than the worst. And this mm -hmm. pernicious drift towards shopping and individualism is extremely unhelpful for the human condition, because people in groups are safer. People in groups are able to learn and train and sort of and do stuff together, and when they want, turn out together. I've just been on the march today for trying to stay in Europe, and it's, it's a it's good issue. There's 100,000 people, fantastic, good spirits and so on. But it feels like the issue is it's, it's not as cutting edge as that issue was there. So Martin Luther King took an issue, he ran with it, but not in a sort of, in a, he ran with it in a sophisticated way. And those people grew in the process, of course. That's what he said. The best thing that's, that's happened, I haven't seen that before, was the internal transformation, I think he said, of the black community to feel more powerful, mm -hmm. to act on their interests, and to win, of course. They won. That's a fantastic legacy for anybody. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Neil. Celine? Thanks. Um, I just found the whole film so inspiring. Um, part of my work and my interest is really about activism and organizing within churches and how we develop a culture of action so that we link our, our belief in the kingdom of God, our belief in the gospel with what that means in the practice of our ministry and in our mission in local communities. And I was so just amazed at the level of clarity of thought mm -hmm. and the specificness, the specificity of um, what they were asking for. So it was easy to, me to measure, you know, whether they had achieved it or not. That moment where, you know, Martin Luther King is saying, they've given us two of the things we want, but there's still two more that we don't yet have. And the determination to see it through. Mm -hmm. um, I, the few things really stuck in my mind, one of them was where he says they expected 50 to 60% of people to get involved with the boycott. They had 99% mm -hmm. of the black community saying, we're not going to take the buses, we're going to walk or carpool. And I just thought that just struck me as just a sign of the unity and the consensus, the kind of agreement that we all want this and we're all going to do our part. Um, and it just inspired me to think, actually, how do we, and because of the way my brain was, I thought about lessons we can learn um, and how do we cultivate that kind of unity? And I'm probably moving ahead in questions. Um, but it made me just reflect on that, the idea of proximity to the, the problems you know, the suffering that we experience, but also being near to the issues, clarity around what exactly it is that we want to do, and that sense of unity. Thank you. Dio. And so I'll say something, um, well, first of all, my response to the film. So like Richard, I, uh, we saw this uh, a couple of months back, um, and I was moved then, and, you know, had a whole set of internal reflections and some of those actually just silenced me for a moment because I didn't have the words to translate the emotion that was going through me and I felt you know so this is the second time seeing it you know am I better at that a little bit but not not hugely I'm still moved by that um, and inspired by that and I'm pained by that having to see some of those witness um, accounts and to connect that then to kind of the film and and, and what we do um, I do work for Christian Aid, but I'm also a tipping point um, board member and so co-lead some of the um, campaign, the MLK campaign with, with Deborah. And uh, a few years back, Christian Aid turned 70 and part of the research in kind of, you know, what's the history about is that we discovered that uh, Christian Aid played a role in, was it the late 60s? 
early 60s when um, Martin Luther King came to the UK and, and uh, they acted almost as his press office. Um, and in discovering that, learned a lot more about the people, the Poor People's Campaign. And ultimately that's speaking to you know, what King talks about, triple evils, uh, race, economy and war. And he also then worked on the Economic Bill of Rights. As we worked through that, those things are still true today. And, and I kept reminding myself through the film that when you, when you are on this pursuit for justice and equality, it's not a one-time win. You don't achieve it and then, you know, it, it's finished for good. You have to keep reclaiming that. And you have to keep recapturing that ground in, in pursuing justice in those three areas. So if you looked at race and you looked at economy and you looked at war and you looked at how you know, the public narrative around that, that is as true today as it was in the 60s. And so watching Dr. King and his methodology and the clarity of his thought and how he's able to bring together what essentially is a human rights agenda but through a, a faith-based lens does not mean these two things are in conflict. And I work in a space where often they are perceived to be in conflict. You're either driven by a set of faith values that somehow do not speak to your human values um, and human, a human rights agenda. And you could have a whole conversation about what that looks like. But it's how Dr. King politicizes his theology. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and. And that hugely inspires me as a Christian, but it also inspires me as an activist. So I'm not surprised I'm working in social justice. And so, you know, today, um, I think it's, it's, it's nine, right? It's, it's five, 10 past nine. Um, and we're six hours ahead of the US. And so today in the US, I think it's in your little program, there is a march on Washington today that's being led by um, Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign. And so, you know, it feels like, actually, though there's a few of us here, we are in solidarity with a whole, you know, kind of thousands of people. I'm not sure if it's going to look like the images we saw in the film, but they're still committed to this agenda and saying something is terribly, terribly wrong. And we have to come together. And it's not just black Christians, it's white Christians too, but it's not just Christians. You know, it's people of all faiths and it's people of no faith because actually the volume and the mass of us standing together is where our strength is. And so we have to kind of get into the language of we, us and ours, and not me, myself and I. Thank I you. There is, more, there is there. Um, a question for the panel from someone asking, you know, what can we do or three things that we can do to counter the terrifying rise of the far right in Europe? Um, whoever that question was from. We'll come back to that, but do we have any more written question or is there a question from the floor? Because we do have a roving mic. If you want to make a comment on the film or observation or question. Yes, some, we've got two people here. Let's take these two, one at the front and one at the back. Um, this young man at the front, right there. Just there between these two women. Thank you. Thank you for the compliment of saying young man. Um, I am ageless, actually, because I was in Detroit in the 60s, certainly working in the black community. Um, and um, at the time when Martin Luther King came through Detroit and then was later assassinated. Um, one of the things that none of you have actually said 
is that what Martin Luther King was saying at, at the outset was these are our rights by statute. And that's the whole message that he was really putting across. It was that the, the, um, the essential created government of the United States was to allow uh, the kind of things that he then worked on and brought in as being Christian, etc. So I leave you. it at that. Thank you. And someone right at the back. Thank you. I was just reflecting on uh, Dr. King's personal journey from what I sense in the film and his strive for obeying God's calling as he perceived to be uh, God's calling for him and also his love for God. So with so many competing agendas and distracting agendas that each of us face, uh, how shall we refocus ourselves on God's calling for us? Okay, we'd like the panel members to hold that question. Maybe two can answer. We've got, we had someone at the back, and then we'll just take this last question, and we'll get some responses. See you. Thank you. Thank you for bringing the film here. It was extraordinary. Um, and, um, and on top of all the things that have been mentioned so far, one thing I, that struck me was the power of music in it, and the role of music, and the, the strength of... Um, of, of the arts as well. I come from an organization called Journey to Justice, and we are a human rights education organization in the UK. And we, teach, we have a traveling exhibition which tells stories of people from the US civil rights movement uh, whose names are not so well known, but we include, for example, a man called Elmore Nickelbury, who was one of the sanitation workers in Memphis. And we tell his story and his wife's story. Um, and one of the young people on that Birmingham Children's March. And we link it with British stories of human rights struggle and the arts, the role of the arts. And we teach about how change happens. So I don't want to mention it to, because this is such, a, such an audience who might be interested in Journey to Justice. It's coming, it's in Dorset at the moment. It's going to Liverpool and coming to Islington next year. Um, and we have an event on July 12th if, if people want to get involved, because and I will tell all the groups about the film if you're wanting to show it throughout the country. It's, it's a wonderful film. Thank you. Thank you so very much. much. Last question there for the time being. Young man, just there. Thank you very much. Um, I was just reflecting on um, King's um, philosophy of nonviolence and nonviolent protest. And I was thinking also of his legacy and looking at um, America today. And the, I was thinking of um, Colin Kaepernick. I'm sure you all heard of him, the NFL player who's um, mm. created a lot of controversy because he's protesting in a nonviolent way by kneeling during the national anthem. And so why, my reflection really is why is you know, nonviolence so controversial? It was controversial during King's time. And it's still controversial now, particularly, you know, as a black person, Colin Kaepernick, uh, protesting in a nonviolent way, and it's still um, not being accepted. And so, yeah, it's just my reflection. I'd just be interested to know what the panel think about that. Thank you. Just to say that um, the film, of course, stopped at 1968. But a year after that, um, James Cone wrote a very, very powerful book entitled Black Power, 
and black um, theology. 20 years later, Cohen wrote another book that actually compared the philosophy of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. We saw some of the clips when King did his tour of the North, how traumatized he was by the poverty that he actually saw. What we seldom don't see is the picture of Martin Luther King with Malcolm X. And there is a view towards the end of King's life, especially after his Riverside speech in 1967. Some would argue that King became radicalized because of his direct attack on the um, Vietnam War. So I think you know, there, are, there are images of King, there are um, prisms through which people see King. And of course, the young, you, know, you were right about the first thing. King did point out that the constitutional um, contradictions in the first part of his, of his I Have the Dream speech. And I think that's a very, very important thing because King was basically saying, as you rightly say, these are our rights. And they've been fighting for those rights for the last 300 years. So I think those are powerful things. Now, two questions. The one about focus from the back. If someone could take that, and also, why is nonviolence a controversial issue? I wonder who would like to take the first one about King and focus. Selena. King and focus. So um, in terms of how you stay focused and discover what you should do and how to you know, be true to God's calling for justice, um, I think that we can be imaginative about what that looks like. So I think that um, when we're trying to discern what God is asking of us, there's some very clear things if we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus that kind of indicate to us his interest in the poor and the oppressed. You know, he says it explicitly that he's come to set free the oppressed and his ministry is constantly reaching the marginalized and those pushed to the side and downtrodden in his time. Um, so we can see from the life of Jesus that actually he's really interested in, in freeing those who are experiencing any form of oppression. So that can be a really crucial thing for us. Um, and when we think also about what the gospel means and the good news, that isn't simply a personal message, but is leading us to the understanding of all creation being redeemed. So that is about the earth that we live in. It's about our structures and our society, the way we live with one another. So that's, I think, the broad strokes in which we can understand what God might be calling us to in terms of justice. Um, and when we think about the specifics of that, I think that I think can depend a little bit on the things that we've been exposed to, the things that rest on our hearts and anger us, I think. In organizing, you talk about anger a lot and what makes you angry. Um, and not seeing anger as the enemy of, of a love, but actually, I think, the other side of love. And when we're angry because you know, our fellow brother and sister's been violated, that's something that is a righteous anger and that can lead us towards action that can make a difference. So I think being attentive to the voices of people around us and what they're suffering and being attentive to what God might be saying to us about what we can do about that situation. Thank you. Before we take the question from someone over there, I'd like if someone like to respond to the controversial nature of nonviolence. I can do three questions in one. In a way. Good, That's even right. better. <laughs> the question about uh, what do we do about the right, the, uh, the far right, both in Europe and in Britain, of mm. course. Uh, King said that the people who love peace need to organize as well and as better than the people that love war mm. or violence. That was directly pretty well quoted from Martin Luther King. So organizing is the alternative, of course. Nonviolence is very interesting because I think we've got, we got soft about nonviolence, really. Yes. It is very sophisticated and it's very effective. There's a question which I know my American colleagues have is why there's never been a civil rights movement in Britain? It's partly because the system absorbs dissent politely. 
carefully, gently. We never have police doing that. We have seen police doing some of that stuff in Britain, but very rare. And if they did, they would definitely be punished for it, and there'd be an inquiry and a commission and all that stuff. But basically, um, I think we should return to being nonviolent. Looking to Simon, because this church is a member of citizens, we've got soft on, we got soft on the actions. We're running the living wage campaign. There are now four and a half thousand people paying this voluntary living wage. That was King's, it wasn't King's idea, but it basically what he was arguing for was the living wage. We've got there by doing all sorts of nice things because we capitalise on the British talent of being polite by going to supermarkets to give flowers, get a relationship, give chocolates, da -da -da, and so on. And slowly we've won over the, some of the corporates who do pay this on a voluntary basis. This gentleman's point about um, he was trying to get the law implemented or the constitution there. In Britain, of course, we don't have a constitution. We have the system. And the system is whatever it makes it is. So today's march has all been about uh, how we have to vote. Mrs. May says, no, you don't have a vote. In fact, Parliament doesn't have a vote on this. The system morphs into something else, which is why we have to act. If we don't act, the system will get away with murder almost. So public action using nonviolence is the way forward. I organize people with larger numbers of people focused on that is the way forward to get the system to work for us. It won't work for us if we don't persuade it to. Just a second, can we, Dion, did you want to come back? Do you want to come in very quickly? Then we've got three rounds of questions. We've got one, two, oh, we've got, okay, we've got five now. Okay, that's good. But can we make the questions very, very short? Let's get a response. Dion, quickly, please. So quickly, just to build on some of the stuff that's been said by two um, panelists here, is, is to say, so if that's the way in how we're going to do that, you know, this is the way we're going to respond, then what are the actual areas that we're going to focus on? And how are we going to do that? So part of that is about, you know, kind of organising, but being really clear about how we organise, but on what issues. And so to give you um, uh, a bit of a flavour of what that conversation could look like from the church's perspective, and I'm talking about kind of when the global church comes together. So I've just come back from Geneva um, just, just Thursday. And in that space, you know, this was a kind of World Council of Church audience, but, you know, they also had friends and observers there too. And in that space, the focus word, so this was seven days, and it was a hard seven days, but the focus word was justice. And so that, you know, our role then as people of faith is to secure and pursue justice. It's not going to just happen. And you do that in a non-violent way, and people have explained, you know, kind of how you can do that smartly. But on what? And so the four kind of key words that were being used is economic justice, King talks about that, gender justice in terms of violence against women and beyond, um, peace and justice, speaking to the war and conflict, if we look at that across the world, you know, where, where that's got us, and climate justice in terms of the environment and creation being violated. And when you start to dismantle what the issue is, you can't just call it out and say, because King was great at you know, kind of speaking truth to power and calling that out, but you also have to kind of come with a solution. So what does justice look like? And we have to, scripture can help us discern some of that, but you have to speak to beyond yourself. So this can't just be the church talking to itself. It's the church talking to the world, but also acting together in order to bring, to get, to bring the right solution. So you can't just call it out. You've got to have a, a vision for what the answer is. Thank you, Dion. I'm mindful that we've got a number of people who want to get a question or comment in. Yes, please. 
doesn't have to be a long question, it could just be a comment. So, you know, let's, yes. Okay, so um, mine was, I think, following on from Dion's in terms of asking, well, what is the action? Um, and, 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 and focusing on that, but also, um, sorry, I forgot Neil. your name, didn't you? Um, connecting that, it's not just action, but informed action, intelligently informed um, and educated action. So you said that we do not have a constitution, and in a sense, you're wrong. We do not have a constitution embodied in a single document. What we do have is case law, and it means that you have to take time to ask the question and seek it. And in that sense, you find things that other people are not looking at, and that way inform and surprise by being informed by what's already in, in, encased in our own case law. Good, thank you. Someone over there, that woman over there with the black top, yes. Hello, thank you so much for this uh, amazing film. It was very insightful and really opened my eyes. Um, today we were at the um, um, huge, massive um, anti-Brexit protest with 100,000 people. But something I think, as um, gentlemen uh, on the stage rightly pointed out, was missing from that um, in comparison to um, the sophisticated manner in which we see the um, civil rights movement and, and how it took off and how they inspired 99% people to, 99 of people to to take part in the boycott. What's missing from the modern protest movement? Um, and uh, why, after 50 years, do we still see institutional racism? Why do we still see so much injustice? Um, why hasn't the momentum of Martin Luther King um, carried on over the last five decades? And uh, what needs to change? How do we change it? Right. OK, did, did we have just, yes, one more there, then we get some response from the Panel, please. Thank you. Thank you again for um, the opportunity to see this film today. One of the things that, uh, one of the comments from Martin Luther King that really struck me um, was his comment about the need for sacrificial love. What does it mean in our lives to sacrifice for one another? and especially as you become more and more aware of where there is injustice, this growing injustice. The world is no better today than 50 years ago. I work in the Middle East, I work in Palestine, and there the churches are calling out for sacrificial love from their brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. They feel misunderstood, forgotten, neglected in the place where Christianity was born. You know, why aren't the churches speaking out? Why aren't the churches taking the real heart of the gospel and uh, the social justice? Um, I'm looking for um, the prophets of today. Where are the prophets? Where are these voices? Um, I, I didn't know uh, very much about what you've just, you know, all the organizations you represent. So that's very interesting. But Thank you. Thank you very much. Listen, that's a very important question. Where are the prophets? And what are we going to do about sacrificial love to bring about transformation? Can we get some quick responses from the panel, please? I think, I think the prophets are 
what the lady was talking about at the back. They're all amongst us, yes. frankly. They're people that speak out. They're courageous people, individuals on their own. Uh, and it's a wonderful work you're doing to try and highlight the fact that everybody potentially is a leader, effectively. And that's important. The press tend to focus on celebrities we way too much. But frankly, we need them sometimes. But mainly, we need lots and lots of people to feel that they have got some issue they want to take on. It's best done together. It's safest done together. I think we're missing today just a knee-jerk reaction. It's music. We got whistles and ridiculous things. And we all booed when we went past Downing Street. That's naff, basically. <laughs> we could have been much more sophisticated. The music in there, the music, the gospel music was there is transformative. It, it touches the soul. We're not prepared to touch the soul in case it's embarrassing or something like that. But there's, there's lots that we can learn today from the practices they had there. Yes. I was also just going to add to that. So most of the people that I work with when I run the programs are people that have come, black people, um, that have come from black majority churches. And obviously um, that's, our, that's kind of been the focus of the documentary. And I think in terms of the prophets, a lot of the people that I work with are people that have left the church because they tried to say something and were kicked down. So they're prophets, but despondent, broken, and redundant. They've been made redundant completely. So they're actually just marginalized on the wayside and have, are not cultivated or grown to be the prophets, to move the church forward, to critique society's ills. Um, and so for me, I feel like I meet these prophets every week. And every time I run these sessions, I'm just like, oh, you're just nowhere. They're, they end up in no man's land. And um, because they get so broken um, in their churches, um, yeah, I'll finish there. Just to say, and um, going on to, um, just adding on to what was just said now, I mean, in terms of Dr. King and the whole civil rights movement, uh, particularly the, the church, he was very much atypical. You know, you sometimes get the sense that, you know, at that particular point, the church was very radical. It wasn't. It was very conservative with a big C and a small C. And the fact is, King ended up leaving the NBC, the, the Baptist denomination, and setting up his own denomination because they thought he was political. They didn't like the idea of him mixing politics with religion. Um, and then moving on to the other issue, um, you know, one of leadership. Yes, he was charismatic. He was a fantastic leader. There was something about him that inspired. Um, you know, uh, he, he clearly wasn't the first leader. One of the, um, you know, and when you look at the first, uh, you know, the, um, the uh, bus boycott, they had boycotts before that, but he was the only one who could actually sustain something. He managed to inculcate a sense of solidarity. He managed to get them to sort of work together. Um, and there was just something unique about him. But the problem is, he dies and everything just ossifies, it just falls apart. Mm -hmm. And that's always the danger in having that type of leadership where one person is at the head, and once the head goes, it just dissipates. Uh, so I was just gonna say the letter from the Birmingham jail was it's wonderful, I think, because there are so many liberal, uh, that would happen now, liberal ministers who would write to a minister that was standing out to say, back off a bit, it'll have sort itself out and stuff. That would happen here as much as anywhere else. I'm sure you're right. He was not on his own, but he was um, unique. Selena? I was just going to say something quick about, I think, that um, our churches along with society are kind of fall into the same trap of being very comfortable. 
and desiring to feel safe. And so I think in church we've lost sight of Jesus who was so radical he was crucified because the kingdom he was declaring was completely contradictory of the status quo. And I think that we've kind of, we have a view of Jesus that's very softly, softly Jesus. You know, kind of strumming a guitar and Mm -hmm. sitting in a field with daisies. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've kind of lost sight of the reality of who Christ was and it's in the scriptures for us to see. He's hated by religious leaders, hated by political institutions. Um, And so I think if we capture a little and remember Jesus a little bit more in his true nature, um, I think that would shape who we're actually worshipping when we come to church. It would shape the way that we preach, the things that we talk about, the things that we think we should be doing as Christ followers. So I think all of that shapes why some of the legacy of King has been watered down or hasn't been followed. Because we've lost sight, I think, of Jesus as he is, as well as the people who've gone before us who really took him seriously. Thank you. And, and so to, to follow on from that, um, the, the comment here, kind of what is the focus, um, or what's missing, I think part of what's missing is a structural analysis, um, one that is shared by all of us. So what Dr. King was really good at is giving a comprehensive analysis of what the problem was and recognise that this is, although it was affecting individuals, there's a system and a structure at work and the task is to dismantle that structure. So you've got to expose it to say, this doesn't just happen. You know, Grenfell didn't just happen. The incarcerated and the numbers of disproportionate young black doesn't just happen. There is a system at work and you have to name and call out the system and that puts your as an individual, your head above the parapets. I would say to the question, where are the prophets? Don't look for them in the usual places. They never start off with a public platform. They are driven by something in here that's about their passion. And the words which uh, King says, it's wrong, it's evil, and it's unjust. And you've got to get angry about that. And only when you get angry do you find maybe a journalist finds you. Maybe somebody wants to hear your, you know, capture your quote. And then somebody comes looking for you to say, are you so-and-so who said, but the anger inside you drives you. And you say, not on my watch. So don't look for them in, the, in, this, in those public platforms, because those who already got the microphones ain't going to jeopardize that. And when I talk about the system and structures, the churches, the institutional church has been here for a long time. The church has its own system and structures. And you know, if you're going to break that from within, you have to call out the church to remember its true mission. Do we have a couple more questions? Um, someone who hasn't spoken. Yes. One at the back, one at the front. Thank you so much, Anna. Uh, yeah, it was a powerful um, film, and one was very hard to watch. And also, I, I enjoyed it very much. I'm a student of theology from Robert Beckford. And um, my, I wanted to say this because it's, it's something that I've noticed, and I think that's why I'm here, really. You ask me where the prophets are. I am an ordained prophet or an anointed prophet. I find that when you take uh, words to church to tell them how they can improve or what you find is going wrong, one, being a woman is a problem that they don't want to listen to you because you're a woman and what do you know? And then the other is we have this Holy Ghost effect that makes you fall asleep in the church. So we're serving Jesus and we're asleep. We're not understanding the mission of Jesus Christ, which is to go out there and fight for people. And I find that um, Martin Luther, this movie, although I read him on a piece of paper when I was taught it, but he came to life to me today 
And why so was a man tirelessly going out there, risking his life to fight for injustice? He said a threat of injustice here or something like that. It's justice everywhere, you know, I mean, justice everywhere. And a lot of stuff are happening to people in our communities. And the church claps their hands on Sunday. And then they go to sleep on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we come back again. And in that time, things are happening to people. So when you, so no, no, my question, it's not a question, it's a contribution I'm making here. That our churches need to wake up and stop sleeping so that we can let people outside who have left their Jesus can actually come up and say, you know what, I find that you are the reason why I want to know Jesus. But you, you're the reason why I'm leaving Jesus. You know, and for me, I, I think the church needs to wake up and do what my professor says, do praxis, join in the fight. Thank you very much. One of the great sermons of Martin Luther King is entitled Remain in the Wake Through a Great Revolution. And there's this symbolism of Rip Van Winkle going up to the, the mountain, and on his way there, he passes a picture on a tavern of King George I. On the way down, there is a picture of George Washington, and so poor old Rip has been asleep for 20 years, and the great revolution is actually taking place. King reminds us that we've got to be attentive to what's taking place in our own era, in our own time. Otherwise, we might be in danger of being asleep when these amazing things are taking place. So thank you for that idea, sister. We are going to keep awake. Someone who hasn't spoken, someone at the back, wasn't it? Yes. And then we've got uh, Julian at the front. The, the, the thing that I noticed on the last two European marches and from King's stuff is we're very good at criticising the current dystopian nature of society. Mm. We're not very good at defining the utopian nature of the society to which we are trying to reach. The kingdom of God is at hand. We're not very good at describing what it looks like. Thank you. Uh, we've got Julian first, then Jack at the back. Unless it's quicker to pass the microphone back. Okay, Julian's after. Okay, yes. Okay, I'll be as brief as I can. It's uh, in present company. I mean, uh, you guys are a really good, 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 good crowd, and uh, uh, more grief, more anointing to your elbow in that respect. Uh, that, that was an incredible film. There's much uh, in terms of contextualization that, I mean, it just bypassed me. What the media, you know, I mean, okay, fine, let me just go on to the thing because you know what I'm going to say about all that and what we don't know, didn't know before. Really, uh, so I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Neil. Neil. Neil Jameson. Yeah. Sorry? Neil. Neil, okay, I thought it was a James, Neil, Neil, okay, Neil, right, okay. It, you really touched on a very fine point, really, about the system. And I've been watching the system, I guess I'm a grand young age of 51, and I've been following politics since I was 12, uh, as a Thatcherite baby, watching her actually realize that she was in power first woman prime minister, so I look back on then and all the years and years and years following in terms of the system, and I can absolutely emphatically probably affirm very accurately that what you said about this, in my words now, this uh, evil, pernicious snake that has a way of slithering in the grass, you think you see it because it's green upon green, and then it disappears. Now, this is the scenario. Martin Luther King, Moses, fine, Elijah, they're crowd pullers. All these, we get our crowd puller in our generation, our prophet. That's a beautiful thought. Thank you very much, sir. Julian, your question. I, I just want to ask the question. That's it. That's, no, thank you for no. the contribution. We huh? want to, thank you for the contribution. We get that. 
Steak in the glass right. green, beautiful. Yes, I think, just, just, just very quickly, if we can not give sermons and just give quick questions, that will be really helpful. Thank you very much. How does the church address the current economic arrangements when, when the historic churches reinforced existing system by depending upon their inherited wealth and investments and the Pentecostal churches reinforce it with the prosperity gospel which just assumes that you do well within the existing system too? That's right. my question. We're going, to, we're going to take one more question and I'd like to get some response to two things. The issue about sacrificial living and then Julian's question about how the church deals with these two polar issues. So if we can go to, there was someone at the back, wasn't there? Someone who hadn't spoken before. Yes, right at the back. One other. Uh, did you want, yeah. I'll tell you what, we've, we've, we've heard your contribution. Thank you very much. We want to give other people an opportunity to speak. Thanks. Yes, at the back. Yes, at the back. Hello. Um, just a few brief comments. First of all, what is the purpose of this evening? Are we celebrating the life of Martin Luther King, as shown in the film, or are we trying to solve the world's, today's world's problems in this Q&A session? Uh, I was privileged very recently to attend a concert by Joan Baez, who's been part of the civil rights movement and been singing about it for the last 60 years. Uh, in terms of the film, I was shocked at the violent treatment of the black people. I was also astounded that there was so much footage and close-up and from height of crowds and so forth, and just wondered where that came from. Uh, one important difference between now and then I think that nobody has addressed is the, the, the authorities didn't know how to respond to such a strong anti-violent movement because they were afraid of the power of communism and also the US was beginning to lose the war in Vietnam. These were very important factors in the way the white powers reacted to the black non-violent movement, I believe. Right, thank you very much for that. Can we get some response from the panel, please? Um, firstly, about the, the sacrificial issue that was raised, and also Julian's question about how we deal with some of the economic problems when the church is almost buying into the system. Well, try that one, if you like. The, the, uh, the crisis for faith is we're losing numbers. We are not relevant anymore. If a church is not relevant, why do people go there? Potentially because they're getting old and they think they're going to die and they have to make sure that they're going to go to heaven or whatever it is. But basically our churches are not full of young people and Pentecostals do quite well and of course mosques do very well. But basically the, uh, the, the adversary for faith is, is consumerism. It's, it is all the other things that are so much more attractive than we are. So I, I think, and I would love the church, or faith and faith, including the Muslims, to be an advocate for justice. But because the biggest crisis for faith is we're losing numbers. I'm a Quaker. 
when I started to organize, there were 23,000 credited Quakers paying money. There are now 13,000 of them. The Methodist church is likely to go out of business in 10 years' time. That and the Baptist church, I don't think, is doing much better, frankly. That is terribly serious for democracy. Because where we learn to work together is in these sorts of institutions, and trade unions, of course. If our institutions flounder because they haven't got the right message or they're trying to sell insurance and so on, like the unions are, then where will people learn how to work together? And I hate this evening to break up fractured because you haven't had a good chance to ask your questions. Because we're trying to focus very much on the solutions, I hope. But I think the solution for faith is to be relevant to people's lives, to be relevant absolutely to young people's lives, and, have a ta and then have tools you can use to solve the problems they've got, which may well be low wages. And I'm sorry to mention living wage. Living wage is a voluntary wage you don't have to pay, and frankly, we would like lots of people to pay it. I'm glad that 4,500 people do. Much more importantly is for our faith institutions to stay relevant, stay relevant, be relevant to their people's lives so that more people go including the trade unions and absolutely including the Muslims who have the much bigger problem than the Christians because they don't feel welcome here. Yes, yes, yes. Three and a half million people don't feel welcome. That's very dangerous for mm. a democracy. Mm. Dion. So to pick up on the question around the economy, of the economy so, so, so what's the solution in that? So I think, you know, you depend on what, well, it doesn't depend on what sector you work on. The current economic model is broken and it's not working. Well, I think it's not working um, for the bulk of people. And so I think, so what's the church's role in doing that? I think the church needs to think about how it works with you know, its own advisors, those who are speaking and have, can advise those in leadership in the church, A, about the current system and what the alternative model looks like. And there's several out there. So it could be from around your position on tax. It could be just... Um, how you support the most vulnerable in society. So you have to rebalance the pot. And you need to speak to people who, you know, economists, who, who are working with an ethical mindset or a Christian or are driven by those values. And I'm not sure that the church has those um, advisors in place. The Church of England does, because it's got a whole investment wing um, and trying to do that ethically. But per se, I'm, I'm not sure that that's out there in the public square. We don't do it. I, I come from the kind of Pentecostal wing of the church. Uh, I'm not aware that they have that conversation, and if they do, it's quite reactionary as opposed to thinking long-term and how you speak then to those in authority to remodel or to re-establish what should be. So, to some degree, we're, we're behind the curve. The church is behind the curve because it's focused on other things. So to pick up your point, at times it feels the church is, much, is more concerned with what happens on a Sunday morning than what's happening between Monday to Saturday. One of the things that we were, we were trying to do this evening is to think about how, um, what are some of the challenges for churches as we try to contextualize King's thoughts and King's um, organizing um, strategies. I think over the last 20 years, especially doing some work with Neil and our citizens, if I've learned one thing about how you bring about change, you can only do change by one word. Organize, organize, organize. Because unless you organize and strategize, the power structures have a way of reconstituting itself. Call it co-option, call it what you will. But organizing is really, really um, serious. And because justice is not just a faith issue, Churches have got to get better at doing organising with other people. Mm. I remember when we organised in the East End of London with the Muslims for the, to get them some more space for their um, centre and how the powers that be were almost terrified. Here for the first time you had people of faith and no faith 
working together for a common um, agenda. And we won that campaign. We won that. We did that by, by actually um, organizing. The, the woman at the back was asking about what are we trying to do this evening? Well, of course, one of the things that we are trying to do is to think about King's legacy and how we make that relevant for our age. But also, the film was a powerful reminder, especially if you saw many of those clips for the first time, of how short our memories can be historically. What we saw there were cadences of desolation, how black people were struggling. You saw the campaign in um, Memphis with the men walking with the placard, I am a man. We're talking about a country that talks about liberty and freedom and yet still treats its citizens in that way. So of course we can't solve all of those problems, but what we can do is to think about now, because you know history um, has a, a funny way of reminding us that we've all got blind spots. So the question for all of us are, what are some of the contemporary blind spots around justice, around immigration, around incarceration, that we need to actually think about? Because as Neil rightly said, you know, the church is appearing to decline in terms of numbers, but the church is still a powerful moral force. Unless that can be harnessed, you know, I think some of these justice issues, one great theologian, Harvey Cox, says, unless Christians take up the struggles, he said that we're leaving it up to the snake. And you know, however you define that snake, I think there's something true about you know, good people filling in um, the gap. If there was someone here this evening who's got a burning question, you haven't had the opportunity to speak, I think this might be a good time for Wale to give you the mic. It could just be an observation, something you want to actually say, because we're almost coming to an end of the evening. Is there such a person? You've had your go. Somebody who hasn't answered the question, ideally. Okay. I have Yeah, man. Oh, good man. Good, good. Yes, my name is Solomon, and uh, I've been very much interested in Martin Luther King for a very long time. But in my view, uh, it's powerful message that he actually left with us. It's that triple evil message thing. But as a people, as a society, that follow Martin Luther King. We have not actually addressed those three issues. Issues, And it's very contemporary today. Because you see, racism, poverty, economic injustice. And then these three things are not addressed. And then it's, it's just front and center in our society today, everywhere. So I don't know if the panel want to touch on that extensively. Thank you. Thank you very much. Panel, would you like to respond to anything you've heard? Uh, so quote from Martin Luther King. Uh, he said that justice delayed is justice denied. Don't leave this building with no plan. Mm. Everybody should have a plan for themselves and their family. If you're in an institution, organize it, reorganize it, get it to relate to its neighboring institution. Two institutions are better than one, given that we're losing numbers and so on. So uh, justice delayed, and there is injustice everywhere. Mm. It's justice denied. Yeah. Martin Luther King um, made a very, very powerful statement when he talked about where we stand in, in moments of convenience or moments of challenge. And I think you know, in all of our communities, in all of the spaces that, that we operate, we have an opportunity to be a voice for the voiceless. 
we have an opportunity to be the prophets, the prophetesses, the people who actually speak truth arm to power. But don't forget, sometimes, in order for you to actually do that, you may have to sacrifice some of your own comforts. And for some people, it means sacrificing their, their lives, like you, the people that you talked about. All we're saying is that Martin Luther King's legacy lives on because fundamentally, Martin Luther King believed that there are certain things in society which are politically unsound. And we can find those things. But we also know that there are certain things which are sociologically untenable. They just don't work. We don't, you know, whether you talk about the mass incarceration of black men or black lives matter, whatever the issues are. But I think as people of faith, and sometimes even people of no faith, there are certain things which are actually morally wrong. And we as individuals have got to stand up for those things. Martin Luther King, at the end of his life, talked about how we would like to be remembered. And you heard the speech. But one of the things he made it absolutely clear is that he wanted to be remembered as a drum major for righteousness, a drum major for justice, and a drum major for peace. I think we can take any one of those, and as Neil rightly said, you know, decide in our own space, what is it that we're going to actually do to be a kind of a drum major for the issues that we feel passionate about. So we'd like to thank Debbie and the team for bringing the film. It was an amazing film. I'm sure there are people here who would like it to go various places and, you know, do be in touch. But we thank you for that. And of course, thank the pastor of this church for making this wonderful place available to us. At this time, if we can give our panel a round of applause, that would be marvelous. Okay, so I just wanted to say thank you particularly to Wale, who's been the man with the microphone. Uh, for those of you who don't know Wale, he's racial justice coordinator for the Baptist Union of Great Britain, and he does a lot more than running around with microphones. He's been instrumental in getting this evening together, so thank you so much for all of your efforts, Wale. It's really greatly appreciated. Thank you to the church here for hosting it. A number of people from the church congregation have been part of this evening. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you to the audience. A reminder that you should check your programs for details if you want the film to be shown in your area. There's information there about how you can do that. Now, as we close, can I offer a blessing? I'm going to uh, offer a paraphrase I wrote last year of the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who refuse the lie that one life is worth more than any other, for theirs is the future of humanity. Blessed are those who have stared long into the abyss, for theirs is honesty beyond grief. Blessed are those who resist retaliation, for the earth will never be won by force. Blessed are those who would rather die for truth than live with compromise, for the truth will outlive all lies. Blessed are those who forgive the unforgivable, for they have seen the darkness of their own souls. Blessed are those who know themselves truly, for they have seen themselves as God sees them. Blessed are those who are provocatively nonviolent, for they're following the path of the Son of God. Blessed are those who choose to receive violence but not to give it, for the future is born out of such choices. Blessed are you when you stand up for truth and hell itself 
tries to destroy you. You're not the first and you won't be the last. I'm telling you now, nothing makes any sense unless you learn to see it differently and then choose to live that alternative into being. Amen. <laughs>